Hey ladies, it's Bridget Todd. March is Women's History Month. Let's celebrate us. As women, we put our heart and soul into everything we do. Release the Pressure is here to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. I'm inviting you to help us get 100,000 Black women to learn more about their heart health. Go to www.releasethepressure.org and take the pledge to prioritize your heart health. That's www.releasethepressure.org. You are valuable. Learn more about your heart health today. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. An incredibly deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. With LinkedIn ads, you'll be able to target over 70 million decision makers all in one place. No deep voice required. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. Terms and conditions apply. Justice looks like how do we use these tools in a joyful, uplifting manner versus just being reactive uh, to the next harms. There Are No Girls on the Internet is a production of iHeartRadio and Unbossed Creative. I'm Bridget Todd, and this is There Are No Girls on the Internet. This week, President Biden signed an executive order to create some safeguards around the use of AI. This comes after Black women, women like Dr. Joy Blumwini, founder of the Algorithmic Justice League and author of the new book, Unmasking AI, have been speaking up about the ways that technology like AI has already harmed marginalized communities and what needs to be done to stop it. Now, that last part is key because even though her groundbreaking research has been critical to understanding technology harms, Dr. Blumwini's vision of the future of technology is optimistic, blending poetry and technology. She asks, what is our collective just and joyful vision for the future? Hello, my name is Dr. Joy Blumwini. I'm the founder of the Algorithmic Justice League and the author of Unmasking AI. My pronouns are she and hers. So I've heard you call yourself a poet of code, which is awesome. What do you mean by that? So I am the daughter of an artist and a scientist. So I do feel I've grown up with the arts and science literally uh, together. And so when I use the term poet of code, it's really to reflect those two Uh, sensibilities which inform my work. So there's a major part of it, which is storytelling and humanizing uh, what's going on with evocative um, audits, you know, and portrayals. And then there's another aspect of it that is getting into the analytical, technical uh, pieces of what it means to evaluate a machine learning uh, system or other types of AI applications. So The poet of code is very much indicating uh, my origins as the daughter of an artist and a scientist. 
Do you think that that, the way that you approach the work has really helped bring more folks into it? Because I've been interested and invested in conversations about tech for a very long time. I did not care about slash maybe even fully understand the implications around bias and things like AI until you. And so you had this way of really making it visible, really making it poetic, really making me understand what was at stake. Do you think that part of why that is, why folks feel so drawn to your work is because you make it so poetic, so, you know, story-based, really help people understand like where they fit into it? I think there is that element. So as I was doing my research at MIT, that involves publishing research papers. And as fun as those are, you know, that's a very small community that will likely read those types of papers. So I wanted to say, how do I go from the performance metrics of evaluating an AI system to something like performance art? Why does this even matter? How do we get to the heart of all of these? numbers. So if we see bias in a system and we quantify it, that's only part of the story. The other part of the story is what does that mean for someone who could experience uh, algorithmic discrimination, algorithmic erasure or exploitation? And that's where the storytelling has to come in. And it did for me when I was a student at MIT, I had an opportunity to do research that showed large skin type uh, gaps and uh, gender gaps with the accuracy of different uh, gender classification systems. So these are AI systems that look at a photo of your face and try to guess your gender. Where could that go wrong? Well, so we decided <laughs> to do a bit of a, an evaluation. And after we ran the numbers and we showed there were large gaps and biases documented, I wanted to show people why it mattered. It does matter to all of us, whether you spend a lot of time thinking about it or not. This kind of technology is becoming more and more commonplace, despite the fact that it doesn't work so well on women or people with darker complexions, setting us up to disproportionately experience harm from its use. In Gender Shades, Dr. Blomini's groundbreaking research, she was among the first to uncover the gender and racial biases that plague facial recognition technology. But, ever the poet, Dr. Blomini's spoken word poem, AI, Ain't I a Woman, really brings the problem to life, where AI misgenders and misidentifies famous Black women in history, like Michelle Obama, who facial recognition recognizes as a young man wearing a toupee. And so from that Gender Shades research project came the art piece that is AI, Ain't I a Woman. Michelle Obama, unabashed and unafraid to wear her crown of history. Yet her crown seems a mystery to systems unsure of her hair. A wig, a buffon, a toupee, maybe not. Are there no words for our braids and our locks? Where I show uh, tech companies you've probably heard of failing on the iconic women of people like Oprah Winfrey, Serena Williams, Michelle Obama, historic figures like Sojourner Truth, hence the title AI Ain't I a Woman. And I saw that when I shared that poem it's a video poem in all kinds of spaces right eu defense uh ministers you know kids in middle school it touched people's humanity in a way that the research couldn't and that for me was really a important moment because for a long time i felt that i couldn't bring 
my art into my research because it might not be taken as seriously or it might lessen its impact. And I found just the opposite. When you humanize what's going on, it extends the reach of the people who feel they have a place in the conversation about AI or even like, oh, this is how it could matter to me. Not some abstract, oh, there's discrimination or tech can be harmful. These harms aren't abstract or theoretical. They're very real and they're already happening. We talked about Portia Woodruff on the podcast before. She was heavily pregnant when she was falsely arrested and held for hours and needed to be hospitalized after being falsely arrested when police facial recognition misidentified her as a suspect in a carjacking she had nothing to do with. And she's not the only one. Back in 2020, Robert Williams, a Black man, became the first documented case of a person being falsely arrested thanks to the use of faulty facial recognition technology. Robert was arrested in front of his daughters after facial recognition mismatched his driver's license photo to someone who stole watches from a Shinola store in Detroit. But Robert had nothing to do with it. Tools like Turnitin that are used to detect students cheating by turning in AI-generated assignments routinely falsely accuses students of plagiarizing. According to the markup, the technology is much more likely to generate a false positive for international students and students who are non-native English speakers. A group of Stanford computer scientists found that seven different AI detectors flagged writing by non-native speakers as AI-generated 61% of the time. On about 20% of the papers, that incorrect assessment was unanimous. Meanwhile, those same detectors almost never made such mistakes when assessing the writing of native English speakers. Obviously, these kinds of accusations could throw vulnerable students' academic careers into turmoil. The people like Portia and the international students speak up when they've experienced harms because of faulty technology. So are the powers that be listening? Do their experiences matter as much as the companies trying to make money from rolling out this technology do? But an example like Portia Woodruff, falsely arrested due to AI-powered facial recognition. She was eight months pregnant, sitting in a jail cell, having contractions for crime. Now she was being uh, held for crimes she didn't uh, commit. And so when you hear those stories, the stories of who I like to call the X-coded, you start to pay attention, right? Or maybe it's your kid and they got flagged for cheating. Turns out they didn't actually cheat. English is their second language, but some chat GPT uh, detection system, right, is flagging them uh, as cheating. And so I do think those stories are what helps people see that this is a conversation that requires uh, their voice. And it's so easy to think it's, like I have a PhD from MIT, but I was doing all this before, right? You don't have to have this type of in-depth technical background to have a voice and to have an important perspective. Because if you know you're being harmed, that's enough. Yeah, a big part of what we aim to do here is to help people understand that you might not be an engineer, you might not have a, a doctorate, but you are the expert of your experience and you use this technology every day or it's being used on you. And so you innately have a, a perspective that is valuable and worth sharing and worth hearing and worth centering about how that technology has impacted you. Let's take a quick break. Hey ladies, it's Bridget Todd. March is Women's History Month. Let's celebrate us. As women, we put our heart and soul into everything we do. 
Release the Pressure is here to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. The RTP Heart Health Squad will support you in protecting your mental health and overall well-being. I'm inviting you to help us get 100,000 Black women to learn more about their heart health. Go to www.releasethepressure.org and take the pledge to prioritize your heart health. That's www.releasethepressure.org. You are valuable. Learn more about your heart health today. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Okay, so I love the internet, but if you listen to this podcast, I probably don't need to tell you that it can come with a lot of very serious privacy concerns. The sad truth is being a traditionally marginalized person online or being an activist or even just somebody who sticks up for what you believe in means having to worry about what kind of information is online out there about us. It's something I think about a lot. And that's why I personally use and recommend Delete Me. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts take it from there. Take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash nogirls and use promo code nogirls at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash nogirls and enter nogirls at checkout, J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E.com slash nogirls, and we'll see you on the internet. Are back. People who are traditionally marginalized, like women and Black women, are made invisible by technology every single day. We're faced with silencing, erasure, and hostility. So is that one of the reasons why the technology that these spaces build also can't really see us? Do you ever feel, I mean, this, stay with me here. I, I think that there is like a general hostility toward marginalized people, like toward Black women, and I think in technology. And I sometimes feel that the technology that is being made in turn mirrors that same hostility, mirrors that same erasure. And so because these facial recognition is not being tested or trained on enough you know, diverse data sets or whatever, um, it in turn erases us. Do you feel that there's like a, that that is kind of because of this underlying hostility toward people who are traditionally marginalized in the space? I actually don't think it's a intentional underlying um, uh, hostility, which makes it even more dangerous. So well-intentioned people, right? Collecting data, doing what they think is good science, good machine learning can still create harmful systems. And this is what I learned after we did different audits and I would go talk to the teams behind some of these systems, right? They were nice people, <laughs> you know, try to send the kid to college, <laughs> right? And uh, it was actually interesting to me because as much as I was wanting to humanize the people who are X-coded, who are harmed by AI systems, part of what I try to do in the book as well is also humanize the people who are creating the systems and where things go wrong. But to your greater point, it's not an intentional hostility. 
sometimes it is a profound and harmful ignorance to not even think to ask certain questions or to test the system in particular ways. That's part of what the research was about. We asked what happens when we put an intersectional lens on the way in which we analyze the performance of AI systems. And just doing that, right, opened up new areas of conversations where before people would just look at the overall score. And that gave us a false sense of progress within the space because we were testing these systems on benchmark data sets to see how well they do. And then you would look at the benchmarks. Some of the benchmarks would be over 80% lighter skinned individuals, over 70%, you know, people identified as men. And if that is your benchmark of success, you're already not going to see how you're failing. And so when we created a more inclusive data set, et cetera, it allowed us to see that the promises of potentially well-intentioned people weren't even panning out. But there's even more to that, because I think with some of these conversations, it can seem like it's a very technical um, problem with a technical solution. Data didn't detect, you know, system didn't detect the face, make it more inclusive, whatever else it is. But the problem is accurate systems can be abused. Mm. We've seen facial recognition systems deployed uh, at protest, right, which we know can lead to chilling effects if you know you're under surveillance for daring to exercise your First Amendment rights to say this is not uh, correct. Accurate systems create tools for state surveillance. So yes, you can say, well, my phone tracks me than the other. You can leave your phone at home. Your face is a little bit harder. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, some people do put on a face, but you know what I mean. Yeah. You know what I mean, right? So I think it's important to understand that even when we have conversations about the accuracy of certain systems and we should have those conversations Accuracy is not enough to assure accountability or equity. Now, when we're talking about accountability, especially from tech companies, it is so easy to get caught in a cycle of name and shame, where you point out all the bad things that a specific company has done. And if I'm being honest, I might have done that a time or two on this very podcast. But Dr. Blumwini describes their method as less name and shame and more name and change. They want to show companies what they're doing wrong so they can change for the better. But this hasn't always meant that those companies don't lash out when her teams point out the harm that they've caused. I'm curious, how have companies, I won't say any names, but companies who you have called out in your research or, you know, said like, this is, hey, this is what's going on. How have they responded to your findings? So overall, I take a name and change approach. So the point of pointing out what's wrong isn't to shame a company, is to say we can do better, right? And sometimes we have companies that are reactive, we have companies that are proactive, and we have companies that are combative. With the first set of research results that uh, we released, we saw more of the reactive uh, stance, which is, oh, now that there's a headline, right, we're going to go, we are on the problem, or we have, uh, or we were already working on the problem, you know, there are different ways 
Um, but now it's a priority because it's making headlines. So I saw that and the reactive approach tended to be a technical approach, which is, okay, there were these disparities, so let's close them. We now have more accurate XYZ. Again, accurate systems can be abused. Then we did experience uh, some combative uh, responses, right? So here we had a, a huge tech company coming out and saying, your research is misleading, attempting to discredit the research of a, at that time I was a graduate student. And I was so fortunate, you know, that I had senior scholars and people well-respected in the AI industry who came to our defense, you know, Turing Prize winner, somebody who was literally the chief AI scientist at that company, saying what the research shows warrants our attention. And this is research we should be elevating, not dismissing because it makes the field better as a whole. Mm -hmm. If we can acknowledge our limitations, understand what's going wrong so we can build more robust systems. Because this doesn't just deal with faces, right? If you want to use computer vision to help, let's say, with uh, medical diagnoses. You want to make sure you understand where things can go wrong so we can course correct for things to go right. Uh, so we had the combative approach, the reactive approach. But the approach I appreciate most is the proactive approach. Okay, we've heard there's some issues. Instead of waiting for someone to drop the paper or the headline, what can we be doing as a company now? And I've had the opportunity to work with Procter & Gamble, with Olay on the Decode the Bias campaign. And when they came to me and they asked for an algorithmic audit, I said, given what you've described, your tool does, and this was a tool that would analyze your skin and give you product recommendations, uh, and how you train the tool on a set of data, I suspect if we dig in there, we're going to find some bias. They're like, that's okay. If you find bias, we'll do what we can to correct it. I was like, and if you can't correct it, we'll shut the system down. I was like, can I get this in writing? I never, <laughs> I never hear this. I never hear this. And then my other question was, if we did an audit, could we publish the audit results? Because that adds another level of transparency. So it's not just, oh, we got checked, but no one knows what happened, right? They agreed to all of those things. We did, in, in fact, find bias as we thought would be there. And they actually, in the proactive, not only did they seek to be audited, they also agreed to a consented data promise. And this was inspired by their uh, skin promise. So when I first started working with Olay, I was excited. And then they told me, you know, when we do the campaigns, there won't be any post-production uh, airbrushing. It, what we what we capture is what we'll show, right? You know, truth in advertising. You want to think about people's body image and all of that. And I'll be honest, I was a little disappointed because, <laughs> like, if you have, you just want to know you could be saved by the airbrush, right? But because of that uh, promise, which is a good promise, I get where they're coming from. As the person on the other side of the 4K camera in your face, <laughs> you're asking, well, can we consider X, Y, Z? But what I appreciated about that is it made me even more disciplined with my actual uh, skincare uh, regimen. 
and I also drank water and I I did all the right things for vanity reasons. I won't lie. I did the right things for vanity reasons. (laughs) But I I think about that with, um, so that skincare, that promise, right? That, that was part of the inspiration for the consented data promise. And just like when you make a promise and it's a public commitment, that's the important part. Now there's a little bit of accountability, right? So now you are going to bed early. Now you are drinking more water. Now you are exercising five days of the week, which might not have been the case before you made that public. Uh, so that's that's an example of more proactive. So from the reactive to the combative to the proactive, we've seen it all. I think what I learned most from the combative response was how much of a risk I was taking as a young researcher to not only do the research, but to name the companies, and I'll name them now, right, that I tested IBM, that I tested Microsoft, that I tested Amazon. And because of their power, that meant I was risking future opportunities. And also other researchers watching how I was treated, how my co-authors uh, were treated, uh, people like Dr. Gebru, they were also getting a sense of what is possible. When I look at research papers now, where people openly talk about algorithmic bias and algorithmic harms, and people openly name the AI models or the tech companies, that wasn't always the case, right? A price was paid for this more robust conversation uh, to happen. Dr. Blomini is right. This all comes at a cost. Dr. Temnek Gabru, who she mentioned earlier, was a co-author on Dr. Blomini's Gender Shades research. Dr. Gabru was once the technical co-lead of the Ethical Artificial Intelligence team at Google. While in that role, she worked on a paper about the risks of large language models from environmental impact to bias. Google demanded she withdraw the paper. It got contentious. The conversation was hostile, and the whole thing was highly gendered and racialized. Dr. Gabru was belittled, discredited, and harassed online, and it ended with her termination. It cost us something. For Dr. Gebru, you know, it cost her her job to speak up when she saw some of the issues that Uh, We see in what they call large language models, the type of AI systems that will power uh, chat GPT, right? And so I do think the timing of the different types of company responses also made a difference in my own trajectory. The first response I had when the Gender Shades paper was uh, published was IBM invited me to their headquarters. You know, I spoke to their team members. They actually had released a new model by the time I was presenting that research and I could share what their results had been. And then later we did our own um, study. So that was a very different reception. That reception gave me hope. I was like, okay, Mm. all right, let's work together. Amazon situation, I don't know. I don't (laughs) know about corporate anymore, sort of thing. And I'm being, you know, I'm putting these as more extreme uh, cases. But the point being, we can't really just wait on if a company is going to choose to be reactive, proactive or combative. What we really need are laws and regulations that don't rely on the goodwill of companies. 
Yeah. I mean, I have to ask when you were this young researcher naming these companies in your in your findings, did you know that you were taking on such a personal risk or were you like, oh, wait, glad it worked out, glad people had my my back. Did you re did you know that that was a risk that you were incurring and did it anyway? Or did you sort of do you sort of look back and think like, wow, I'm really glad that worked out? I knew that once the research was published, it would be questioned. So before it was published, I actually sat with a law clinic, right? We went through what could be said, right? What might actually put you in legal jeopardy and so forth. So I didn't go into the situation not thinking there might be blowback. I was actually surprised with the first round we prepared. And they're like, oh, yeah, okay, these are issues. Come to the headquarters, X, Y, Z. We've released new models, et cetera. The blowback that I got with the second paper is what I had thought I might experience, but just the magnitude of it, I wasn't ready for. I remember with the film um, Coded Bias available on Netflix, it shares part of the story of graduate students starting algorithmic justice league and examples of people experiencing real uh, world AI harms. The people to provide the insurance for that film were nervous because we critiqued Amazon. It wasn't that Amazon had said anything. It was just a acknowledgement of Amazon's power. Right. And so it didn't dawn on me just how powerful some of these tech companies are. I remember being at an uh, international summit um, in Switzerland, and it was as if the heads of the tech companies were heads of state, you know? And so observing that closer made me real. I was like, oh, I'm like, okay, I'm poking. It's like, okay, I'm poking a dragon. I'm like, oh, it's a fire-breathing dragon. <laughs> oh, it's like a dragon dragon. It's like when you go to kill a bug and you're like, oh, it's got wings. It flies. <laughs> right. So I knew, like, you know, it's not going to be the best situation, but I don't think I was fully prepared, uh, though I thought I had prepared. More after a quick break. Hey ladies, it's Bridget Todd. March is Women's History Month. Let's celebrate us. As women, we put our heart and soul into everything we do. Release the Pressure is here to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. The RTP Heart Health Squad will support you in protecting your mental health and overall well-being. I'm inviting you to help us get 100,000 Black women to learn more about their heart health. Go to www.releasethepressure.org and take the pledge to prioritize your heart health. That's www.releasethepressure.org. You are valuable. Learn more about your heart health today. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As we celebrate International Women's Day and all the strides we've made, let's also take a moment to reflect on something important. The future of our self-care. 
You see, for too long, we've compromised on things that matter most, us, but not anymore. New Conair Girl Bomb is helping us embrace a new era of self care and self love. Girl Bomb represents a groundbreaking line of hair removal tools specifically designed for women. From the smoothest shave to the most precise trim, Conair Girl Bomb is all about making you feel empowered, confident, and unapologetically you. Whether it's creating a hype playlist, throwing yourself into a hobby, or scheduling some me time, self care is so important. With Conair Girl Bomb's ultimate Girl Bomb grip and professional grade blades, we're reclaiming our self care journey with precision and power, the kind we used to only get from men's tools. So head to Walgreens today and treat yourself to a little Conair Girl Bomb magic. Because when you look good, you feel good, and there's nothing more empowering than that. Let's get right back into it. Even though Amazon tried publicly discrediting Dr. Blomini's work, calling out the harms of their facial recognition technology, in the end, they conceded the technology wasn't exactly safe. In 2020, they announced a pause on allowing police to use the technology and eventually extended that pause indefinitely. And correct me if I'm wrong, but your work ended up with Amazon rolling back some of the uses of their faulty facial recognition technology. So ultimately, not only were you obviously vindicated, but that work went on to create a somewhat like safer landscape for everyone because Amazon had to step back and be like, okay, wait a minute, this technology maybe isn't really working that well. They would not put it in those terms, but they did make, <laughs> they did take <laughs> other steps. So I will say before Amazon, uh, IBM actually said, we are no, no longer going to sell uh, to police departments. And this was in 2020, right? So we also had the murder of George Floyd uh, happening at that time. And Microsoft said, we will not sell this until regulations are in place. And then Amazon came third, you know, and they said, uh, we'll halt it for a year. And then they extended that halt. Right. But this is to say there was an acknowledgement, right, of the risk and the harms. Was it just risk and harms to people or risk and harms to the company's reputations? It could be mm. a combination of both. I'm excited to share that this research led to uh numerous cities, you know, incorporating some of the findings in their analysis and in their statements for why they chose to enact uh, certain laws that restrict police use of uh, facial recognition. It also changed the conversation at the national and international level. The EU AI Act uh, actually has a uh, provision that would uh, prevent the use of live facial recognition in public spaces. When I spoke with President Biden at the AI round uh, table some time ago, this was top of mind. I shared the story of Robert Williams being wrongfully arrested in front of his two daughters. We talked about racial bias in AI systems and other types of harms that can impact many people because no one Trust me, no one is immune. <laughs> this isn't just other people's um, problems. And so to see the reach of that work uh, certainly made all of the combative, you know, uh, responses and things like that um, somehow worth it. And it really goes back to what you were saying earlier about 
how systems don't have to be biased to be misused. And like, I, I don't know, I want to believe in a tech landscape where companies with so much power don't have to wait until something goes wrong, don't have to wait until somebody is wrongfully arrested, don't have to wait until they're called out to make things a little bit safer and more equitable. Like, do you believe that is possible where companies aren't just reacting, they're actually, you know, being proactive at wanting the technology that they deploy on all of us to be more equitable? I think that, again, you do see companies taking on the mantle of responsible AI. You'll have other companies like Credo.ai that will have services that are meant to help companies adopting AI systems do it within a responsible way. You'll see companies hiring responsible AI leads, right? So I definitely think there is an intention there. Where I still push back a bit is self-regulation is always self-interested. Not surprising. So I do think real accountability requires external accountability. And the other part that I don't really see companies focused on so much is redress. So there's a lot of conversation about being responsible in terms of preventing future harms. But what about those who have been harmed? already. And I do think algorithmic redress is oftentimes missing from this conversation of responsible uh, AI. So when I see the company stepping out to say, and we're doing redress, I might be convinced. I haven't seen it yet, though. Prove me wrong. Prove me wrong. I want to be wrong. (laughs) Well, as somebody at the helm of an organization fighting for algorithmic justice, what does justice look like? Justice looks like you live in a world where data is not destiny, where your hue isn't a cue to dismiss your humanity, where you actually have data rights and you can consent to how your information uh, is used. Justice looks like how do we use these tools in a joyful, uplifting manner versus just being reactive uh, to the next harm. So when I think of social justice, you can't have social justice without algorithmic justice, because if you're saying we're pushing for gender equality, yet you have an AI system that cuts out women's resumes. We didn't quite make it, right? You can't necessarily say, oh, we have racial equality, and then you're adopting biased facial recognition that's putting, so far, the folks I've seen have all been dark-skinned like us, (laughs) you know, into prison due to misidentification. And so me, for me, right, algorithmic justice is truly being in that place where we can be our full selves and not be targeted, right, or algorithmically placed as other algorithmically erased, algorithmically exploited. And so that's the world uh, we fight for, right? We say free the X-coded. And so this is algorithmic justice. The book is Unmasking AI, your namesake, Joy. I have to tell you, you are such a joyful person. Speaking to you about this work is, it just comes through how much you care and how, I don't know, I have a lot of conversations about tech that are hard and dark and grim and your work is just so the opposite it asks what if what's possible what can we do how can things be better like it's just really nice to see somebody leading the way with such a joyful but justice rooted perspective it's so refreshing 
Thank you. And it's so wonderful to be in conversation with you. I love supporting epic, badass, you said I could cuss, women. <laughs> so this is great. <laughs> so how can folks learn more about the Algorithmic Justice League? I'm so glad you asked. We do have www.ajl.org. And so we invite people to be agents of change and join the Algorithmic uh, Justice League. We have a library there as well. So if you're new to this area and you are curious, you know, what is even uh, AI, we've created uh, resources for you so you can be part of the conversation. And we also have an Xcoded Experiences platform. So like you were saying, you are the expert of your own lived experience, and we value that expertise. So we do campaigns where people can tell their stories of being Xcoded. For some people, we just launched a campaign about facial recognition in airports. So people are sharing if they saw signage, if they knew they could opt out. And all of that actually builds a database of stories that shows if the TSA or others are actually doing what they say. They said it was optional. I didn't even know I could opt out. We have a disconnect, but we also have the data, right? So <laughs> I do think um, people, as they are encountering various AI systems and they have uh, questions or stories to share, uh, AJL is that place um, they can go to. So please check out AJL. It is, you're doing such incredible work. Thank you so much for being here. And just thank you for being you. Thank you for being in the space. We need more people like you. Thank you for having me. Black women like Dr. Blomini have been speaking truth to power when it comes to AI. And it's critical that the people who hold that power are listening. Her new book, Unmasking AI, is poised to be one of the most important books about technology of the year. And it could not have come at a better time. It's available now, so I'll hope that you'll join me in reading it. If you're looking for ways to support the show, check out our merch store at tangodi.com store. Got a story about an interesting thing in tech or just want to say hi? You can reach us at hello at tangodi.com. You can also find transcripts for today's episode at tangodi.com. There Are No Girls on the Internet was created by me, Bridget Todd. It's a production of iHeartRadio and Unbossed Creative. Edited by Joey Pat. Jonathan Strickland is our executive producer. Tari Harrison is our producer and sound engineer. Michael Amato is our contributing producer. I'm your host, Bridget Todd. If you want to help us grow, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, ladies, it's Bridget Todd. March is Women's History Month. Let's celebrate us. As women, we put our heart and soul into everything we do. Release the Pressure is here to help Black women look at self-care as an act of self-preservation. I'm inviting you to help us get 100,000 Black women to learn more about their heart health. Go to www.releasethepressure.org and take the pledge to prioritize your heart health. That's www.releasethepressure.org. You are valuable. Learn more about your heart health today.
Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.